in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple. We're the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg and I am joined today by Coach B. Coach, our last podcast over a month ago was called I Cried 13 Times. It's been sitting there for like six weeks and it seems kind of depressing. You think we can manage something a little bit more cheerful for the feed this time? Oh, I'm certain we can. How have you been? Oh, you know, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, back in the 206, uh, you know, right down the street from UW, actually, right now, hanging out Excellent. over. Um, let's let's get into I, I did something a little different because we're in the in the midst of the offseason and the new Husky topics are not coming as fast and furious as they sometimes do. So I went to chat GPT like everybody does for everything now. And I asked it for the most interesting Husky football discussion topics. Uh, I took a few of their highlights and I edited them a little bit, but I, I actually thought these were kind of interesting questions. So first one, uh, how does the team's current roster compare to the Huskies historical teams? Uh, and more specifically, the last time I think the spirits were this high at this point in the offseason was probably headed into 2016 uh, when it was a borderline top 10 team going into the year and ultimately made the CFP. How would you compare overall the roster that we have coming back right now to what we had at that point? Yeah, I think there's definitely reasons to be excited uh, about this team heading into this upcoming season. Um, personally, I think it's, it, it, it might actually be higher spirits overall from at least that's the sense that I get then in 2016, I think it's, it's fairly similar expectations of a, uh, roughly a top 10 start to the season in the polls. Although that doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, I was doing a little bit of freshening up on kind of wh where we stood heading into the 2016 season and, and kind of giving an assessment on, on that. Cause I think, um, it's it's totally right to be kind of comparing our team now to that one as far as you know what we think the overall potential and ceiling of of this team is, and you know while there are differences in how this team is uh this current team is built and some of their strengths might be different from that team, uh, I think overall we we have a fairly similarly talented, um team as far as at least what we knew of the team heading into the season you know obviously we didn't know that Taylor Rapp on that 2016 team would be quite the star that he ended up being and uh, John Ross had one of the best seasons uh, Husky receiver has had in many you know ever yeah. really yeah um, not to mention Miles Gaskin I believe he was what a second year starter at that point yeah, uh, yeah. in that 2016 season rushes or has a total of like 1,500 scrimmage yards or something like that. I mean, nobody saw those things coming, really. I mean, we might have seen some uh, some flashes and things like that. But, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, I, I, I think, you know, even knowing all of that, this team is is uh, well-positioned to kind of capitalize on some of that. We, we might have some, uh, some actually better returning 
known quantities than back then. Like, you know, we have two returning thousand yard receivers. We have one of the best quarterbacks in the country. I mean, Jake Browning ended up being, you know, kind of our equivalent of Kellen Moore, one of the winningest quarterbacks in program history, statistical leader in a lot of those career uh, statistical categories. But, you know, I mean, Michael Penix has made his name known over the past year um, at UW. And I, I think the, the returning talent on that front um, on the offensive side of the ball is phenomenal, right? I mean, we have two of the best tackles in the, at least the conference coming back, possibly in the country. Um, we have uh, a really deep tight end room that uh, has a good mix of both uh, blocking and receiving ability, good upside, good returning experience, all of those things where I think that they could be a real, uh, a real factor uh, going into this year. I mean, maybe, maybe not as dynamic as some of our tight ends have been in the past, you know, like Sperian Jenkins or Otten or Hunter Bryan. We might not have a singular um, standout in that room, but we have a lot of, you know, key contributors and, and, and new players, new faces, that can really elevate that room. And so it's it's really exciting, you know, kind of building on our, our more pass-heavy attack last year, a little bit different than the, you know, more balanced, um, more explosive running game that the 2016 team had. Um, but but there's, there's a lot to be excited about on that front. Um, defense is a little bit different. Um, you know, hindsight being 2020, we had a number of uh, high draft picks in the DB room, we had, you know, uh, starting, cal- you know, NFL starting caliber defensive tackles, um, a little bit different than than our team uh, heading into this upcoming season, where we have a lot, uh, a lot better, I think, known talent at edge rusher, um, you know, between Braylon Trice and ZTF and, and all of those guys, uh, you know, our, our strengths, again, are a little bit different than that team. But, uh, you know, we have some good incoming talent um, and returning talent at linebacker. Um, you know, we have guys like Raylan Goforth, who is uh, a transfer from USC that has some experience and some talent and can provide some some uh, added depth there. Rotational guy, maybe, maybe even starter. We have Tuputala coming back. We have Eddie Yu coming back. Um, you know, we, we, we have a lot of guys back there as well as, uh, a number of experienced guys in, in the DB room that can, you know, hopefully step up. We have a nice blend of talent and experience and, uh, Jabbar Muhammad coming in from, uh, Oklahoma state. And so I, I think we, we have a pretty strong, well-rounded, uh, talented, you know, roster across the board. And, and there's a lot for me, uh, to look forward to. Yeah, I think kind of what you described about the offense and the defense flip-flopping and our expectations between those two rosters makes sense. And it's not just that, you know, then it was defense, awesome, offense, work in progress, and now it's the opposite of that. They're kind of works in progress in, I guess, what we would hope end up being the same way. Because you described guys like, you know, Miles Gaskin, John Ross uh, had shown flashes before, but they hadn't really established themselves as all American, all conference, you know, NFL 
prospect type players yet. And I think we have a lot of those guys on our defense. And if we are going to take the next step to be a legitimate conference championship contender, college football playoff contender, it's going to require the defense to step up in exactly that sort of way. You know, guys who we know have the talent, not just being okay, but, but taking the next step in their development, maybe taking like two steps in their development. Somebody like, you know, Julius Irvin or Asa Turner, I'm, I'm kind of focused on the secondary based on how last year went, or even Dom Hampton, getting him more in kind of like the right position. Uh, if he's moving uh, to be a full-time safety, getting those things lined up is an opportunity for some of these guys to be uh, maybe, you know, not just adequate starters, but almost star level players like we saw Gaskin and Ross become that kind of propelled us to the next level in 2016. And I think, you know, offensively a lot, it, there's a lot of similarity kind of like uh, in 2016, we had this loaded defensive room where we had three all conference defensive tackles. You know, you shouldn't ever have enough playing time <laughs> to go around to have three all conference defensive tackles. Like we, we could theoretically have three all conference wide receivers, you know, like there's just this embarrassment of riches in certain places and uh, secondary was great. We've got great, you know, what looks like a very promising running back room offensive line, like you mentioned. So it's like, kind of hard to find the weak spot in that defense and this offense, but then you need the other piece of it to, to keep up the development. So I think there's similarity in that way, but we'll see if we can actually execute the same way. All right. Next chat GPT question on the 2023 Washington Huskies. Who are the most promising players to watch for the upcoming season? That's that's a pretty vague question, pretty general, but uh, go ahead and, and uh, give me a couple of names who you think are the most promising players. Yeah, I'm I'm that 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 is a pretty vague question, but I I have uh a couple guys that I'm looking forward to seeing um as as well as how we use certain talents and certain positions and things like that. Um I'm really looking forward to seeing um kind of the development and the growth in uh the guy, the Parker twins. Um this uh interesting. Yeah. Uh, because you know, we we all talk about, you know, how important the defensive line talent is and these guys were too under the radar kind of last minute recruits that we we managed to to bring on board uh right as the staff was getting themselves established and you know at, at face value that these guys look like absolute studs i mean you know six two six three somewhere around the 290 ish range you know, built like bulls and, you know, just stepped onto campus and looked ready to go, except for the fact that they were really under-recruited. And we kind of started to see, um, I can't remember, tell you the truth, I can't remember which of the twins um, actually played last year because one it of was them was Javon. Okay, yeah, J- Javon Parker. I remember this because our, our true freshmen who played were named Javon and Javion. That's right, that's right. Um uh, Javon Parker started to kind of establish himself in the rotation a little bit um, towards the end of the season. I believe he got his first sack in the Apple Cup, if uh, my memory I serves think that's me. That's right. Yeah. And, and he looks the part, right? He didn't look out of place. Um, and, and it's kind of, kind of uh, rare to see that type of defensive line talent kind of step up that early in their career, especially, you know, uh, on the West Coast where defensive tackle prospects, that body type isn't super common. Um, and it's hard to to 
you know, keep on the West Coast. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they kind of develop, how maybe they take the next step. I, if I remember correctly, there was some of the chatter that the other Parker brother, Armin, uh, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, um, was actually maybe the more talented of the two. He uh, didn't play last year. I think he was injured for most of the season, had a uh, pre-existing injury that he was uh, still recovering from. So, I mean, if, if, if potentially the less talented of the two was already starting to find his footing, make an impact, you know, th- those two guys could be key pieces in rotation, especially after, you know, kind of whiffing uh, on, on defensive tackle commits over the previous couple of classes. Um, so, so that'll be really exciting to see. I'm also looking forward to seeing, you know, um, how our DB room shakes out, right? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the shuffle of, you know, potential shuffle of positions now that, you know, they have a full year under their belt, the staff knows, you know, how these guys have, uh, become acclimated to the, to their new scheme, maybe seeing, okay, they had their initial evaluations, tried to put them into the best positions. Okay, maybe maybe this player might be better suited somewhere else um, in the secondary uh, to better capitalize on talent, um, kind of alluded to potentially shifting uh, Dom Hampton over to safety, um, maybe some shuffling, um, maybe Powell moves over to Husky or Cam Fab moves from Husky to safety. I, I don't know. Um where all this might land, but, but it is uh, interesting to see, you know, maybe they shuffle some guys around, maybe some uh, guys that have been around the program for a few years, maybe take that next step um, in, in maybe a new position, maybe one of our really talented DBs um, in this uh, 2023 class step up and uh, find themselves getting some early playing time. You know, there's guys like Vincent Holmes, who his, uh, from pretty early on, been one of my favorite uh, recruits that we landed in this past cycle. I think that guy is a total playmaker at safety. You know, he has speed, athleticism, range. He understands what he's seeing, has great instincts, ball skills as a two-way player. Um, you know, I, I could totally see him kind of just showing, you know, having his talents uh, show real early on. Um, so so th- those are some of the guys that uh, – I'm really looking forward to seeing how they how they uh progress in this in this uh upcoming off season. Yeah, I, I'm very much with you on on the realignment in the secondary, and I alluded to that earlier, but I think the idea of Hampton moving to safety to kind of get to his physicality a little bit more, uh get him out of just straight man coverage so much of the time and allow him to be fast and powerful and supporting in the run game and making plays on the ball is is exactly what we want what I want to see from him. And then if Powell is moving, if the Husky role really is more of a coverage role, it seems like that's probably well-suited for Powell. And then Irvin just settling after he's moved around, faced so many injuries over time, just kind of getting a chance to get reps at a single position. I love all of those things. And I think all three of those guys could take big steps forward if they're, like you said, a year under their belt in the system, uh, a healthy year, more or less coming off of last season and putting them in the right positions to, to really excel. And then offensively, there's probably not as many opportunities because we return so many players. I'm excited about the, you know, what we see next in the internal or inside of the offensive line, but I'm also, you know, I don't think he's under the radar, but Dylan Johnson, the transfer from Mississippi state 
could give us kind of an explosive physical presence in the running back room that we didn't really have last year. And we got really good production out of the running backs, but just having that threat of the big play and the ability to kind of truck people and, and do a bunch of different things as a running back is just a different look and something I'm excited about. For sure. I like, like I'm totally with you on Dylan Johnson, the unique skill set that he brings in, especially for his size and athletic profile you know, uh, six foot ish, about two ten to two twenty range. You know, that's that's a pretty physical build for a bigger, you know, style running back. But he has good hands. I mean, he's yep. he had, uh, you know, I think over a hundred hundred fifty or so receptions in his three years at uh, Mississippi State. He's well versed in uh, some some of the more passing game aspects of uh, of the position coming from the Mike Leach air raid um you know that you don't see that blend uh all too often I mean we, we had guys like Cam Davis on the roster for the last couple of years who you know is a similar build had some of the you know more w- well-rounded skill sets in the room but I don't think that he's um that same type of diverse skill set with, with the receiving game, even though he was capable of it and, and he showed off some of that uh, over the past couple of years. I think, I think Johnson uh, has a more well-refined, more polished uh, receiving piece of his uh, toolbox. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I, I think it'll be exciting to see that and, and still hopefully some room to grow into this system, but let's the, the next topic that was generated again this one is a little bit vague but i want to specify a little bit more Uh, what is the team's current recruiting strategy and which types of high school prospects are they targeting for future seasons so i I thought this one was interesting because i think back now that we have a a recruiting cycle and a bit under uh kalen DeBoer's belt we can look at the types of players that they've targeted to bring in not just specific positional needs at the time they came in but is there a type of player or types of players, different positions that are different from what we were looking at in the past? Is this something that you've noticed at all in recruiting so far under this coaching staff? I have um, noticed certain trends. I don't think big picture, you know, there, there's a huge shift or anything really identifiable. I mean, overall, I think that between Kalen DeBoer and Courtney Morgan, um, what I've noticed is, you know, as far as player acquisition overall, right, not just the high school recruiting, but also through the transfer portal that we're seeing them focusing on improving the overall talent, you know, athletic uh, talent there, you know, uh, and really identifying players that have a unique difference maker quality to them, which, which again, kind of vague but you kind of run down the list of the guys that we have, right? I mean, um, all of our, our receivers are a little bit bigger now. Well, with the exception of uh, Reynolds there, he's he's on the smaller end. But, you know, we got Tayshawn Lyons and Rasheed Williams, right? Both of those guys are listed at 6'2 plus, right? You got a little bit more length over there, um, some some difference-making athleticism or, or really polished skill set as far as being able to create separations, route runners. Um, and, you know, you, you look at other positions, right? You can kind of identify, you know, if you take a little bit of time and looking at the film, these guys are difference-making. They might not all fit the same mold, but have something unique about them, right? So, like, um, I talked about Vincent Holmes, the combination of, 
pure athleticism as well as instinct, right? And being able to cover a ton of ground, right? I mean, that, you know, in, in the old defensive scheme under Coach K might be like the ideal type of free safety. We don't really run a lot of, you know, single high uh, coverages these days, but he is a difference maker of some sort that I'm going to trust the staff knows how to how to really capitalize on. Where you look at Landon Hatchet, he is one of the best center prospects. I mean, typically you don't really see uh, college programs really value and put that much effort into recruiting a center, really a center only prospect, but his ability to both snap and be a mobile blocking threat, great puller, variety of different uh, run blocking techniques, athletic and all of that sort of thing. He is a, a unique skill set that we can capitalize on somehow within the scheme. And you, and you can keep going down the list, right? I mean, we have a lot more athletic um, true off-ball linebacker types between Devin Bryant and um, she, what's his name? Uh, Jordan Whitney. Both real athletic, uh, can do a variety of different things, can cover a ton of ground. So, I mean, that's that's a common theme there is trying to upgrade the athletic profile of that position. You know, we got the rest of the offensive line class. I mean, you know, um, Elisha Jaquette, uh, we got... Um, Saone, Fasolo, we got uh, Kaylee Tafai, you know, we, we got guys that are uniquely large or uniquely athletic or something like that where we can really kind of, you know, maybe the scheme might need to shift a little bit to best capitalize on their talents, but something unique about them, right, athletically. And then, you, you know, you go over to the transfer side of things, you know, you got uh, – Josh Cuevas, the tight end out of Cal Poly, um, who was really under-recruited out of high school and then suddenly burst onto the scene. He is of the classic Y tight end type of build, you know, 6'5", 245, big physical guy, physical, you know, as a receiver, physical in the blocking game, you know. He might not be, you know, well-polished or anything like that, but it's different from the skill set of, like, Jack Westover, who's a little bit smaller, good blocker, solid hands, but, you know, isn't a dynamic receiving threat. Flip side, you got Devin Culp, right? You know, a little, little bit different than that. He's more of a dynamic athlete, has really improved as a blocker. But, you know, with bringing in Josh Cuevas, he's different from both of them. He is another unique skill set, right? So maybe, you know, in a year or two, you know, we might be able to lean on more two tight end sets or something like that. I don't know. It's it it kind of gives flexibility there. Dylan Johnson, like we just talked about, unique skill set as far as a rusher and a receiver, right? So it's it's kind of maybe not pigeonholing certain roles and certain fits, you know, for for these incoming players, but really just hey, who who is somebody that we can really capitalize on their unique skill set or unique athleticism within the scheme and, and trying to maybe mold the scheme around what we got. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. It seems like as a as an overall theme, there's faith in this coaching staff that they can identify talent and develop it. And if that means they're going against the grain of what the recruiting rankings say, they're okay with that. I mean they they were heavily recruiting 
uh, Keinholz last year before anybody else was really interested in him and he ended up at Ohio State. We, we know how that played out, but I think it was, it seems like a good example of at least talent recognition. And he, the way our running back recruiting played out last year was similar. Everybody, you know, would have said, looking just at the rankings, that Jaden Lamar, who local prospect and highly rated, should be the number one target and they said they're more interested in Tybo Rogers and we'll see how that plays out but they trust their their evaluation and their ability to develop within what they want to do for an offensive system and I, I like that commitment to your own uh, faith you having faith in your own ability and your own um, evaluation skills and then, again you know, and then Tybo yeah. Rogers another example of a unique skill set I mean Jaden yeah. Lamar great you know like you said in-state player you know, great talent in and of his own right, but he is more of a pure rusher. Whereas Tybo Rogers played receiver, played running back, both of them at a really, you know, high level for, you know, high school. I mean, I believe, you know, before he got hurt in his, in his last uh, season in high school, he was leading his team in receiving as well as rushing. Right. I mean, you know, again, kind of emphasizing those unique skill sets or traits or something along those lines that's kind of what this the staff is looking for. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I, I had one other recruiting question, and this did not come from uh, artificial intelligence. This was my own um, <laughs> <laughs> natural <laughs> grass-fed intelligence. Uh, so we got one piece of recruiting news over the last few weeks was Austin Mack, the four-star quarterback, not only committed, but reclassified and signed for the 2023 class. So Speaking back to Keinholz, this is somebody who will ultimately take his place in the class, although as a 16-year-old, which is crazy that he's this young and he was able to graduate high school and get on campus um, and be part of this year's recruiting class. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you see in in Mac just from evaluating him, but also what you think about this, like the uniqueness of this situation for our quarterback room and for just having somebody who, who's so young as part of the team. Yeah, I, I think that he's definitely a different type of quarterback than what I had thought we might have been looking for, um, having recruited Kineholtz so heavily. I mean, Kineholtz is a dynamic athlete. You know, he's a great multi-sport um, player, uh, athlete, you know, basketball, baseball, football, all of those things. He was a dual-threat quarterback, you know, good you know, passing talent, good quarterback, you know, passer of the ball, but was also one of the most dynamic rushers on his team, right? I mean, you could kind of, I mean, his high school kind of did just let him take over games, you know, when, when push came to shove and, and it was crunch time. I think Mac is a little bit different. I mean, he's, he's a good athlete, you know, in his own right, but he is a different style. He has a different style of play. He's a little bit more of a passer, um, he's he's a big kid. I mean, for 16 years old, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure he has plenty of room for physical development and all of that. But, you know, 6'6", 210, I mean, that's that's already a big, you know, uh, frame and pretty well filled out, all things considered, for being 16 years old. Um, I, I think he he's... Uh, better developed as a passer than what you would expect out of a 16 year old who, uh, you know, I would imagine 16 year olds, at least when I was in school, that's somewhere between <laughs> sophomore, junior year or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same thought. I was like, this guy is going to be at college. He's going to be doing his own laundry and he's like <laughs> not even able to drive yet. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's one of those ridiculous things where, I mean, he'll show up. I, I think he will show up at 16, maybe 17. I didn't actually do that that much online, you know, stalking or whatever. Um, but, I mean, you know, think about it that way. Even if he's 17, he might graduate from college, have his UW degree when it's all said and done, and still not be able to drink beer yeah. legally. That, that just kind of blows my, my mind. My, my wife did that. She was got her degree from UW when she was 20 years old. But she well, was not a, a four-star recruit in, at least not in football, <laughs> that I that she's ever told me about. If that came out at this point, it'd be a very weird surprise. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's great for the roster balance, although, you know, we only have two scholarship quarterbacks uh, before we signed Mac. Uh, I don't know if I feel that differently about the depth. Like, I don't think it's saying like, oh, well, if something happened to Penix and, and Morris at the same time, well, at least we have this other scholarship quarterback. Like, yeah, talented, developed for his age and everything, but I, I don't feel great about putting like a child into the game. Uh, no offense to Austin Mack for calling him a child. Uh, I'm very, very happy that he's coming, but I, I do hope that we're able to give him another year, uh, maybe two years of development and practice and everything uh, while he's still physically developing and emotionally developing and getting ready to play. It's hard enough to show up at college when you're like 18 or 19 and try to uh, you know, acclimate to the environment, be away from home, be away from your family and everything. Uh, it's 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 going to be weird. It's but good for him. I'm very excited about it. I, I do get the sense that that he is on board with a redshirt year development. Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm kind of you know, quarterback recruiting and uh, quarterback room management has become so much harder in today's age of the transfer portal and IL, all of these different things where everybody's looking for that spot, right? And you know, fortunately, I mean. But look what happened with Sam Heward. He was stuck behind, you know, Penix, who came out of nowhere as a transfer and blew up and then came back kind of unexpectedly. And so, I mean, at least fortunately for us, where we have one more year Penix, where we might be able to reach certain heights that we haven't really matched other than that 2016 season. Um, but I am pleased overall to kind of see that, hey, this staff has a plan. They have backup plans. Good contingency plans I, I don't want to say backup but contingency plans for whatever might happen Austin Mack wasn't even on my radar until all of a sudden Kindholz left and I'm like oh wait hold on we're, we're in the thick of it for this other quarterback who all of a sudden reclassifies and it's it's promising and very encouraging um, to see that they have this plan I think that you know um it's been said that they were in close contact with Kamenong, our 2024 mm -hmm. uh, quarterback commit, who was always okay with, hey, maybe they're going to bring in another quarterback. Maybe they're going to bring in, you know, another transfer, stuff like that. It seems like, you know, if they have, if they're having Mac reclassify and come in this upcoming season, from what I've heard and what I kind of understand is he's okay with sitting Maybe we'll bring in another transfer to kind of bolster that depth in the room. Um, let him develop, then bring in coming on behind him. He seems like he's of the mindset where, okay, I understand the situation. I'm still good with the situation. You know, maybe not to the extent where he's kind of giving approval of any quarterback moves um, for the staff, but he's at least on board and, 
and kind of gets it. And and that's kind of rare these days to kind of have guys that are okay with learning and sitting and maybe not being an immediate starter. Right. Yeah. And and to that end, uh, before we move on, just shout out to Dylan Morris for you. Know, I, we've heard about how he he wants to go into coaching after his college career. Uh, and hopefully there's still a path to him getting serious playing time again in a year uh, after, you know, a successful season for Michael Penix. We can, Dylan Morris can have one more really good year as a starter. Uh, but the fact that he's as patient and, and okay with being the second option is rare and great for the team and, you know, cool for him. I, I, I hope all the best for him based on what he's done for the team and his unselfishness uh, there. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, the realignment and the expansion and the media rights of it all. Uh, it's going to be a wildly speculative segment, but it should be fun. So stick around and we'll be right back. Thank you for sticking with us. As promised, we're going to talk a little bit about the business of the PAC 12. First, I want to talk about the composition of the conference itself. The most recent rumors we've heard have the conference flirting with San Diego State and SMU. Namely, these are avenues into two big um, markets for TV and for media rights in Southern California and the Dallas area. Are you in favor of adding these teams? Obviously, it's it's a step down from USC and UCLA from a competitive and uh, kind of dynastic standpoint. But do you think they can fit in with the conference? Yeah, I was, I was, I'm kind of torn on this because, you know, I, I think one of the challenges facing the conference over the last 15 years, let's just say, has been that we haven't had really good teams that could achieve at the highest level flagship, you know, tent pole programs like USC was in the early 2000s, right? And because we didn't have, you know, we, we were, we had really good parity and it was always very exciting. And I, I think there was some truth for a long time that, you know, the West Coast Pac-12 schools couldn't really compete with, say, the SEC or the top dogs of the Big Ten. But, you know, we don't really have, we, we weren't able to achieve the highest levels and create that visibility for the conference. Now, bringing in potentially San Diego State and SMU, I don't think we're really replacing that. I think that really what's going on is we're kind of shifting everybody up the pecking order. So whereas in the past it might have been USC and maybe recently Oregon as, you know, top contenders or, you know, Utah has taken a step up as well over the past handful of years. You know, everybody's kind of shifting up and then we're replacing at the bottom, which you know, it, it doesn't really help us long term, I don't believe, as far as keeping the Pac-12 together as a viable entity, as a power five conference and things like that. I, I totally understand kind of the strategy that they're looking at getting or, you know, retaining presence in Southern California or in the the Texas markets uh, for both media rights and, and TV deals, as well as recruiting and visibility to these new areas and regions where, you know, we might've had recruiting presence there before, um, but, but not an actual like uh, true member there um, that can be a, a year round presence. So I'm, I, I think, I think they're both strong programs, you know, but maybe not 
really what we need. You know, SMU has taken a step up, uh, kind of leaning on some NIL and the transfer portal, and they have a good, they've had a good stretch of, uh, of coaching hires there. I mean, you know, Sonny Dykes was recently at SMU prior to this past year, um, and, and he was really, you know, getting that program in the, on the right trajectory. San Diego State has been a, a powerhouse for the last 10 years or so um, in the Mountain West. But, um, you know, I, I, I really think that they still dilute what we have as a conference and, and might not be really what we need. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I, I, I Before I get into my opinions on the schools themselves, I, I have to say this is, as a big caveat. I, I'm not none of us know what's happening at the bargaining table for the media rights contract. So it's really hard to say whether these are good ideas or bad ideas. Like if, if getting a big contract, if it's going to make a difference of $15 million a year per school to have members of the conference in these markets, then yes, it's a great idea. If it's going to dilute the overall pool of uh, media rights money, it's not a good idea. And I, we're all a step removed from this because we like watching football and basketball and other sports. And we like following the team and learning about recruits and watching players develop and what going to, to live events and watching rivalry games and things and how much money a, a TV network can make off of ad revenue and pass along to uh, the conference to get distributed to the teams is pretty remote from those things, but it's obviously relevant to, to, you know, the budgets we can set for recruiting and players bring in and how good the games that we watch will be. So it's, it is relevant, although it's not really what any of us want to be following. I think <laughs> when we, when we kind of became fans of UW or another college football team, but with these particular teams, you know, if if there is a strong financial motivation to add two more teams, it seems like they're at least in the right kind of stratosphere or right category of programs you would want to bring in. Like you look at the teams that have successfully kind of come into bigger conferences in the last couple decades, the ones that jump to mind are, you mentioned TCU and Utah are the ones that jump to mind for me who kind of leveled up in the conference alignment and did so really successfully. And they've both been, you know, major, become major national powers in a way. And they're in pretty big media markets. They're in areas that have a good recruiting base, a talent base for players. And as the demographics shift, you know, you, you don't want to be taking teams that are kind of going to be in a, a wasteland of talent development, but Utah's actually seemingly growing as a talent base and Texas is always going to be strong and Southern California as San Diego state is, is maybe not as strong as it once was, but it still remains a very strong talent base. So, I mean, and, and they have alumni groups, they have, you know, San Diego state just moved into their new stadium. Uh, they're, they're also a really strong basketball program, which is a nice mm -hmm. uh, benefit. I mean, putting all those things together, it seems like they have the right characteristics to maybe become what TCU or Utah have been. And they're not just slotting in as the 11th and 12th best teams in the conference, but could maybe ultimately, you know, predictably be in the top half of the conference, uh, which would be great. Do I want to be here? I mean, <laughs> in an absolute sense, probably not. Like I'd probably rather just go to 10 teams um, and, and, you know, make a bunch of money from a media rights deal that way. But I don't know if that's possible. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I'm not saying I don't think it's possible. I'm saying I have no idea if it's possible. So let's talk a little bit about the media rights part of it. 
where we stand right now, uh, the George Klavkov came in as the conference commissioner with his big job of being securing a better media rights deal. The Big 12 kind of jumped the line by signing a new deal um, a year, even though their contract expires a year later than ours does. Uh, and it was probably for a little bit lower number than expected, but they locked it in. So they have a floor and they know they're going to remain at least vaguely competitive, although it won't be anywhere near what the Big Ten and SEC schools make for media rights. So the most recent stories have indicated that the Pac-12 was possibly looking at a hybrid streaming and broadcast deal, maybe something where we sell some of our games to Apple or Amazon and then some of them to a network uh, maybe, you know, cashing in bigger with the streaming deal, but then maintaining some exposure and higher profile with the, the, the network. What are your thoughts on that kind of arrangement? Does that seem like something that could work long-term? That, that, that's another tough kind of question there. Cause you know, obviously we're, we're well removed from where any decisions are being made. So I, I, I don't, you know, none of us really know how it's going to pencil out. My concern a little bit um, is, you know, even if we get the the money from a streaming deal, right? It's it's how many eyeballs? What's the visibility? You know, are 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 we getting? I mean, we've already and we we've seen it over the past twenty years plus, where kind of the West Coast has become a little bit more of an afterthought just because of geography, time zones, and and how many people on the East Coast are actually even paying attention to us, right? I mean, we see that repeatedly with the West Coast Heisman candidates who, you know, really don't, you know, get the attention that they deserve um, because of all the East Coast voters just not staying up late enough to watch Pac-12 after dark or something like that. And I think well, and uh, it's probably it's not to interrupt, but that's it's probably that's I don't think that's anything new, but I would say yeah. we are more aware of it now because the sport has become more national. Like 30 years ago, the the people in the Northeast followed their their team and then who they played and the people in the Southeast followed their conference and the teams they played because that's just kind of how the sport was set up. Like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of interconference rivalries and their uh, you know, the bowl games where at the end of the year, there wasn't a playoff where you had to be aware of like all these other teams. But now the way, you know, TV and internet and even the structure of the sport works, you kind of have to be more aware of uh, the rest of the country. So like the fact that people in the Southeast don't stay up till two in the morning to watch uh, Arizona play Colorado or whatever is more obvious. Uh, and yep. it, it just didn't matter as much before. You, you hit it ex exactly right where the sport has become more national, right? The, the national awareness of, of different programs and, and certain conferences um, is totally legitimate and, and was, is something that I believe to be the case. Um, my concern with streaming would be, you know, you're moving off of a well-distributed platform into a new media right or you know form of distribution and you know it, I'm, I'm a little concerned about exacerbating the problem of us already being you know behind the eight ball it's all it's always been an issue but you know potentially shifting from espn or fox or something like that where you know they have uh well-established viewership bases and and are being uh broad are broadcasting games to a larger audience already, you know, we might be making a short-sighted move with the eyeballs and the viewership and, and kind of 
on on top of that kind of what I've been seeing and and you know I'm I'm kind of you know a, a nerd about this I kind of really enjoy you know keeping up with some of this realignment because this this is the future of what the sport's going to look like nationally it it's that you know in the last round of realignment 10 years ago it was all about trying to get into specific media markets because of cable television right i mean that that's really the only reason why rutgers joined the big 10 you know rutgers isn't a very good program it's got it extremely well <laughs> <laughs> but but being in i you know new jersey or whatever that got yeah basically in new york yeah yeah they got them the foothold in the new york media market right whereas what i've noticed in this most recent round of realignment is you know you you look at texas and oklahoma going over to sec usc and ucla going to the big 10 it's shifted from media market specifically to also a, a large factor in that is brand and the visibility and the power of that brand and the following of those brands, right? Um, I, when USC and UCLA first moved over, you know, everybody started looking for, okay, who's the next domino? The the big one was Notre Dame because they have such a big brand and aren't tied to a conference yet, right? And And that's kind of why Washington and Oregon are the new flagship programs of, I guess, the Pac-10, <laughs> Or, yeah, or the pack, what, whatever. Or, the whatever. numbers have stopped meaning anything years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. Um, ironically, though, is that with the new additions to the Big 12, it's, they're actually back to being 12. Yeah. Right. Uh, if, after so many years of not meaning anything whatsoever. My but, favorite, I preferred it when the, the Big 12 had 10 and the Big 10 had 12, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was always so backwards to me. But you know, if, if branding and following and alumni bases and all of that are becoming more and more important to, you know, really the key players, which are networks and, you know, media companies, right, that are paying for all of these uh, broadcast rights, then, you know, ideally we would want to set ourselves up long term for enhancing our brands which which really isn't just about being competitive year in and year out right i mean you got a team like utah or program like utah that has been competitive you know for a number of years now but really isn't that valuable in the grand scheme of everything right i mean nobody's really talking about them as being the real revenue driver in this newly negotiated tv deal or anything like that yeah. so so, I mean, it's that that's kind of the tough part. And then, you know, big picture overall and where I think this might go, it's, it's I really don't have confidence anymore in Lyavkov as our commissioner. I mean, he, sure, he, he's kind of reminding me of like Scott when he was the commissioner, right? He had one great idea. You know, Scott back in the day tried yeah. to go to Texas and, and expand to the Pac-16 or whatever it was going to be, right? But whiffed on it, right? Lyavkov has a great idea. Hey, let's try and get a portion of our media rights over to streaming, trying to be the first player in this new media market or this new segment of the media market, right? But didn't have re really any other good ideas. And, and, and really, it's like you look at the Big 12, Brett Yormark, their new commissioner, started about the same time as Klyavkov and really seems to be in the driver's seat for a lot of these next upcoming moves. He's 
like you said, he might have taken a lesser deal than what he really could have had he waited and waited until, you know, down the line. But he kind of set himself up really well. He got that new media deal locked in his current members, preventing other folks from poaching any other, you know, programs from the conference. Then he went on the offense, went and got, you know, the really the best available group of five teams, Houston, UCF, Cincinnati, BYU, right? And kind of sucked the air out of whatever was left. I mean, sure, they still have Notre Dame out there kind of holding on to their independence. But now the Pac-12, we're stuck in San Diego State and SMU. Whereas, you know, maybe if we were more aggressive and forward thinking, you know, hey, BYU, geographic fit, good program, has a large following because of their connections to the Mormon church or whatever, right? I mean, a little bit more of a brand name than San Diego State. That would have been an excellent addition. If we wanted to go into the Texas market, Houston would have been an excellent option that I probably would have been more excited about than SMU, right? So so he's kind of backed us into, you know, your marks backed us into a corner. And, you know, it's it, we're, we're, we're kind of playing from a disadvantage, uh, you know, kind of a disadvantage right now because we haven't been as proactive kind of clinging onto Klyavkov's only real good idea that I can tell so far. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm, I'm a little less uh, enthusiastic about what the Big 12 has done than you are just because they, it feels to me like they're, they've, they're safer, but they've also locked themselves into kind of a, a middle-class uh, ceiling. They're, this, the media rights deal they signed is going to give them, you know, I think less than half of what the, the SEC and Big, 12, Big 10 schools are getting per school per year. And the schools they added, I, I don't think are going to, are, are the type, I mean, Houston, I'm with you. I'm with you for sure. But I don't think the rest of them are going to have the opportunity to really like elevate the status of the conference uh, oh. the same way that um, some others might. But I, I, it's it's just hard. For, I think the points you're making are fair, but it's just hard to know, hard to compare what they've done with what we have done when we haven't kind of like played our cards yet we don't know what the the outcome will be if it ends up being we get the same deal as them and also lose some exposure and don't have any ability to kind of grow as a conference that would be troubling and i think if that happens um i don't think washington and oregon will be in the in the pack long term the pack whatever long term um so i i think there are two possible outcomes one is we get a deal that's it's not going to be an SEC deal, but it can be somewhere in near the midpoint of what the SEC and Big Ten have, um, and what the Big Twelve just did, uh, or Oregon and Washington ultimately leave and probably end up in the Big Ten. Like those seem like the two realistic possibilities to me. But we shall see. I mean, maybe I'm I, I don't know as much about it as as some others do, and it may may end up being very different from that. Yeah, I I, I kind of agree with that. And- you know, I, I guess maybe I should clarify my earlier point where maybe I'm not quite as high on the Big 12, but I'm just much more pessimistic about the future of the Pac-12, really. And yeah, yeah and I, I agree with kind of the, the two avenues there. It's, it's we either lock in a middling deal that's maybe, in my opinion, at best, similar to the Big 12. We're not... 
we're not going to come anywhere close to the SEC or Big Ten, right? Um, or UW and Oregon leave in the Pac-12 or whatever it is, ends up really being relegated to kind of like a Mountain West level yeah, uh, and something like that. I think the best case scenario, really long term, specifically for Washington, might be, you know, it, it especially with the Big Ten commissioner change and, and their new commissioner hasn't been named yet. I, I, I really doubt that we'll be able to get an invite to the Big Ten in the next year or two. Right. Um, our, our, our best move might be trying to join the Big 12 on a favorable deal of some sort. I, I know it's been floated around rumors wise that um, we're valuant we're valuable enough uh, programs us in Oregon that you know we we really would be elevating the overall buyout uh, uh, payout rather for the big 12 where maybe we can negotiate favorable terms where hey we'll join your conference we'll lock it in but get a good uh, buyout clause in the event that the Big Ten comes calling, which really yeah. I would like to be part of the Big Ten over any other conference, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would prefer if none of this happened and we were kind of locked into uh, you know, a conference like it was a few years ago because I, I yeah. like the regional rivalries and everything, but oh, yeah. for long-term health, it looks more and more like that's the only way to remain relevant. So we shall see. This is a fascinating topic. We'll have to talk about it, about it again sometime because I think there's a lot of meat left on the bone to talk about like the relative advantages of streaming versus broadcast and things like that, but uh, probably a little short on time today. So let's get into our, our recommendations for the week. I know you told me beforehand that you thought of something and made a note of what your most entertaining non-football thing of, well, not even week of the last month, month and a half is. So I'm excited to hear it. Yes, I actually came prepared for once, and uh, you were joking that oh, you, you actually brought something. Maybe we'll just skip this segment this time, yeah. just to just to be funny. But um, it's not so much of a recommendation as much as it is a shout out to UW's men's hockey team, oh, cool. which I didn't even realize was really that prominent or actually very good. But we recently wrapped up the. Uh, uh the regular season come to find out uh 25 and 2 there oh, wow. you go. i mean that's that's saying something multiple games won by double digits in hockey is absurd <laughs> we are working people over here and um i think it's i don't think we're playing up to like the NCAA level or whatever like Michigan or Notre Dame or some of those east coast schools are i think it's still at a club level and it's i yeah. think the conference is like the pack eight or something some variations mostly northwest schools like eastern and western and boise and gonzaga or whatever it is but um yeah i i i just checked the schedule i think we're playing the whatever the playoff is for this uh level of ice hockey uh, coming up, I think tomorrow is the first game. Um, I don't remember who we're actually playing right off the top of my head. Playoffs are in uh, Salt Lake City, though, and um, going to send them some positive vibes from over here. Uh, hopefully, they can bring home some hardware. Awesome, yeah. I it, college hockey. I grew up in the in the cradle of college hockey in the Midwest, North Dakota, and you know the UND, Minnesota, 
uh, St. Cloud State, Minnesota Duluth, uh, like in Wisconsin, they're in a different conference where I was growing up, but these are all like the elite college hockey teams. You mentioned Michigan, they're up there too. Uh, but I, the only team on the West coast, I believe that plays at that like level is Arizona state, which is so funny to me. Really? I, I think it has something to do with like the Phoenix coyotes had such a, a problem with their arena for a long time. And they, somebody built a really fancy arena in Tempe or in downtown Phoenix, uh, to try to get the Coyotes to play there. And part of it was that Arizona State was also going to play there. And it didn't work out with the NHL, but they now have like a real college hockey team. And so they're constantly traveling to like uh, Maine and uh, upstate New York <laughs> and, and Minnesota to play games, which is so funny to me. That is um, patently absurd right there. Yes, and actually, yeah. So I, I, I just looked it up um, who we're playing. So tomorrow – in the ACHA regionals, we play East Texas Baptist, oh. another place where I would not expect ice hockey to be a very big sport. Yeah, but much man... East Texas Baptist, much tougher than West Texas Baptist, North <laughs> Texas Baptist, and so on. Uh, and then we play Dakota College after that. Dakota College, I have never even heard of that as a Dakotan, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, maybe it's it used to be known as something else. I, I also wanted to, while we're giving UW athletics shout outs, a great start for the softball team. We'll go into more depth on that when Gaby is back from New Zealand. I know I joke about like her globe trotting. She's actually in New Zealand right now, but really good start, really entertaining start too. And, uh, looks like there's a Gabby plane is out of the program, but Ruby Malin is ready to pick up where she left off as the ace pitcher. Very exciting start. Uh, my recommendation, I'm going to, I, every year my wife and I watch all of the uh, Oscar Best Picture nominee movies. We're, we're almost through the list. Uh, my favorite so far is Banshees of Inisherin, which I think I talked about months ago, but the, the one I've watched recently that I liked the most was Triangle of Sadness, which is just a, a very, just a weird movie about uh, kind of like excess and, and selfishness in, in the modeling industry. And then, uh, these people get shipwrecked on a cruise and the kind of their lives kind of deteriorate into a state of nature and everybody is fending for themselves. And it's just such a strange and interesting and, and entertaining movie. It, I, I highly recommend watching it uh, just for the originality and the weirdness of it. That sound good. Anything else from you coach? Uh, not really. I think that we really, uh, gone into some depth over here on, on quote, quite a few topics. Um, yeah, we did. May, maybe one one last thing. Not going to say any names, throw anybody under the bus, but I will reiterate to all the listeners that I am only at UW Dog Pound. Uh, there was some scuttlebutt about some other things, and I won't name names, but uh, all of what I'm doing and all of my writing is only found here at <laughs> UW Dog Pound. That's funny. And... Uh... <laughs> Also, some one very angry person accusing you of not being a real coach, even though it's in your name, which was <laughs> hilarious. And wrong. like, I, I think coach is like president. Once you've been a coach, you're always a coach. Uh, like, you still you don't have to say ex coach B. It's just coach forever. Yeah, it's there's some interesting personalities out there on the interwebs. Yes, yeah, absolutely. In the meantime. Uh, We'll, we'll be back in a few weeks, probably. We don't know the exact timing, but as the news dictates, we'll be back and possibly joined by Cody Pickett himself. We're always getting closer and closer. In the meantime, thank you for listening and go dogs.
Go dogs.